Um, hi, everybody, and welcome back from the tea break. Um, let me just do a little bit of a um, brief introduction first, uh, based on some of the comments and uh, thoughts from the previous panel. Um, I really like the idea of uh, which Matthew Matthews uh, talked about in terms of the three types of parents, you know, the loving lion, the new school, and the old school. Largely because I think if you think about it, right, you can almost associate anybody you know, especially your own parents or your, or your siblings, with uh, being a new parent, I mean, a new school, old school, or a loving lion. My mom was obviously a loving lion. You know, everything must be good or better or best, you know. And if it's not good enough, well, okay, you know what happens for my generation, you know, a lot of disciplining happens at home and all that kind of stuff. So you can, you can kind of believe that happens as well. But at the same time, my brother, um, who has four kids, he's, he belongs in a kind of like the new school camp. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't quite believe that education should be just about academic performance, but rather that he wants his kids to grow up to be more well-grounded, more holistic, you know, more, 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 more interested in some of the broader things in life. So that you can see how those kinds of categories of parents kind of fit in with our own realities. I think that's quite interesting. That's one point I want to make. Second point actually is about tuition. Now, the topic um, that, that I'm going to be covering with the panel is about curriculum emphasis and tuition. Uh, tuition is obviously a very, very profitable industry in Singapore, and it's also very um, interesting in the sense that you go to tuition for a very specific purpose. It is largely for academic performance, right? Otherwise, it won't be such a big industry, I think. Um, would you send your kids for tuition if the tuition covers, for example, honesty? Would you pay $200 to send your kids for a tuition lesson or you know, monthly tuition for honesty, uh, fortitude, belonging, love? I think most of them won't, right? Instead, they'll send them to church or to your grandparents, you know, or to your auntie who's the loving lion, you know, that kind of stuff. So tuition serves a very, very specific purpose. But it is also a perception. The PISA results, uh, and Andrew Schleicher has actually pointed this out, that there is no correlation between tuition and student outcomes, academic outcomes. So it's interesting when those kinds of results are presented, and yet parents still believe that tuition fills a particular gap in schooling. And I think that's the important thing. You don't go and send your kids to tuition unless you believe that there is a gap in formal schooling. Okay, which kind of brings me to this number of points, three of them. First of, that, first of all, um, Genevieve pointed out quite rightly that um, our education system has been changing. There's been four policy initiative waves going through from survival-driven all the way to student-centered values-driven. And the kind of the interesting ones are starting from 1997 onwards, the Thinking School Learning Nation. Changes in the curriculum has been happening. Okay? Our, our education system is never standing alone. And not, not a lot of people know that. And with the changes in the curriculum, the more, kind of like the more emphasis towards inquiry-based learning, etc., you get changes in the pedagogy as well. And parents don't necessarily know what happens in the classroom. What they do usually see is a child coming back home with a bag full of worksheets, and then the child, you know, look, going through the worksheets and all that. They don't go into the classroom and see what actually happens in the classroom. Okay, and 
What's interesting is that the work that we've been doing in NIE has been documenting kind of like the changes in pedagogy that's going on in a lot of the schools, mainstream schools largely, um, since 2004, 2005. When I first joined the Centre for Research in Pedagogy and Practice, that was the first time I've been inside a classroom since I was myself a student, okay, if you think about it that way. And in 2004, 2005, okay, I go inside a classroom, it looks like there's a lot of very teacher-fronted kind of teaching, a lot of focus on textbooks, okay? But when we go into the classroom again six years later, we begin to see a shift. And then again now, we begin to see even more of a shift. The balance between this emphasis on exams and the emphasis on more less exam-based, inquiry-based, more disciplinary kinds of teaching and learning that happens in the classroom, the balance is starting to kind of even out. Previously, people were always interested in focusing on the exams, but we're beginning to see this kind of balance occurring now. Okay? And it becomes even more nuanced when you think about it this way. P5, P6, you know, exam time. Teachers, as teachers, will know, you're preparing these kids, you're hunkering it down, you're going to focus on exam results. But in early primary years, you begin to actually relax those kinds of emphasis. And you begin to do some of the more creative kind of packages around innovative pedagogies that happens in the classroom. So you see this kind of balancing that happens as well. Okay? And I think that brings me to one key question that I have. Every school is a good school. That's kind of like the rhetoric that we've been, we've been talking about. Maybe the key thing is not really every school is a good school. But in the context of change, every school is always an improving school, okay? Because the change will happen, and the change will happen in relation to the curriculum that drives that kind of change and the assessment, of course, okay? And the other thing that I want to point out as well, the, the emphasis of this panel is about curriculum emphasis, curriculum emphasis and tuition. And if you look at those two topics, they're quite interesting because one is really about formal schooling, and the other one is really about out-of-school learning, okay? So one is about formal, and the other arguably is about informal learning. And if you think about it this way, throughout an entire life of an adult, you'll be spending maybe less than 20% of your life in, in primary school and secondary school, formal schooling. The rest of the learning that occurs, occurs outside of your school. That's why this emphasis now on lifelong learning is becoming important. Right? Because learning doesn't just occur in schools, but it occurs outside of school. Whether it occurs in a tuition centre, or what kind of tuition centres you send your kids to, and what do they teach in the tuition, learning still occurs there. If you send your kids to church, learning occurs there. You send your kids to your grandparents, learning still occurs there. So learning is not just happening in schools now, but it's both formal and informal. So in the literature, they talk about three things. Lifelong learning, which everybody knows, learning throughout your entire life, from when you're a child all the way until your old age. There's also life-wide learning. Learning from a breadth of experiences. You're not just focusing on your academic outcomes, but you're focusing on other things as well. Okay? Jason Tan talks about learning for cycling. I think that's a good example. You know, when we get the drilling that happens and the hammering that happens over here, you're kind of learning to filter out those kind of things. That's an acquired skill as well. So all those kinds of learning contributes towards a life-wide form of learning. There's a third kind of learning as well, life-deep learning, which is really about learning why you exist as a citizen, why you exist as a human. What are the values that are really important to you? Okay, What are the kinds of 
beliefs that you hold dear for yourself and for your society. Now, I'm not saying in that case that schooling no longer plays a function because 80% of learning occurs outside of schooling. Instead, schooling does play an important role. Education plays an important role as well. Okay, if you think of three key professions in our society, medicine, law, and education, those three are arguably the universal human rights of any society because they protect you against pestilence, injustice, and ignorance. Schooling serves that particular function in terms of preventing an entire citizenry from becoming ignorant. You know, we, we saw the fake news that was recently going out about this particular Australian teacher magazine and how that person was in our redesigning pedagogy conference and reported it. And when people read it, wow, it went all over. It went viral, especially when Mr. Brown actually uh, retweeted it and everything. But nobody did think to question the, whether that was really a factual piece of work. They just take it as a given. There's a need to kind of prevent people from becoming too ignorant, and schooling plays that function very well and very importantly. Okay, so in this kind of broad context about this need to balance between the curriculum and out of school kind of learning, I would like to kind of uh, introduce the three speakers that we have here. Uh, I would like to invite them to come out as well. Uh, uh, Kami Lee, uh, Lim, uh, she's the former principal from uh, Raffles Girls School and now um, head mind champs, am I correct? Yes, thank you very much. The second speaker will be Suzanne Chu. Suzanne Chu, hey, hi. She's from um, NIE as well, uh, assistant professor from the English language uh, and liter uh, literature. And uh, she does a lot of interesting work around cosmopolitanism as well. And finally, Mr. Tong Yi. Uh, who's from the Thought Collective. So let me uh, ask Kami to come and give the first talk. Um, good morning, everyone. Okay, let me see where it's mine. This is not mine. Ah, here it is. All right, good. Let me put it to the, yeah, it's on. Um, okay. Uh, very good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I've asked for a mic because um, I definitely must have been ADHD when I was young. Only at that time, it wasn't discovered yet. So anyway, I'll be walking around because I cannot sit still or stand still. Okay, can I just have a show of hands? How many of you have children below eight years old? Hey, not so many. Ah, okay. Well, that's roughly early childhood. Um, how about nine to 12? Oh, uh, yeah. Mm, quite a lot of you. And how about those terrible teens? <laughs> oh, good, good. So, <laughs> so today I'm going to focus on something uh, more curriculum rather than tuition. Uh, I know it is a, a big business here, but I will more inclined to focus on curriculum and pedagogy. Okay. So this is learning to play and playing to learn. So why play? Right. Now this was the, uh, the first cover screen of the New York Times. 
And this was used by um, Stuart Brown, who's the founder of the National, uh, National Association for Play in, in, in New York. And he said that play is the catalyst for learning at any age. Isn't that fantastic? So play shapes the brain, opens the imagination, and invigorates the soul. Isn't that wonderful? So I'm very playful, as, as you know, okay? Right. So let's have a look at more, I should say, crafted play. I think play to all of you means playing basketball, uh, track and field, or play, play some games of something. Right? Actually, I wanted you all to share what sort of games you all are playing, but never mind. We'll just go on to uh, crafted play. Right? Crafted play is like exploring the world with guidance. So having teachers and parents guide the learning through play activities that suit the child's age and level of development. So for me, that is important. Right. So let's have a look. Well, I'm so glad to learn that many of the parents at the, at, in your survey, Matthew, that learning is not just for test score, right? And I'd like you to read this quote. Everybody, one, two, three. Not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. Uh, this was attributed to Einstein, but I, I found out that it's more to William Bruce Cameron in 1963. Well, this was the quote I gave to uh, SPH, uh, what's her name, Sandra Davy, when we had the ranking during my time as principal, right? So anyway, this is important. So test scores, many parents, uh, they say no, they are not, but they still want test scores. For me, the important thing is pedagogy, right? If we can... Uh, have maybe innovative strategies that can excite learners to be engaged in the learning. They will have fun and enjoy learning and the test scores will come. This is like John, where's John? The example he gave in Tamasic School. So that's important for us as teachers and parents to have crafted play for our children. Okay. Let's have a look. I'm going to give you some examples of what we do in crafted play, but very quickly, but they are all in early childhood because that's my area. But I can share some of the uh, maybe strategies for older children later, if you like. Right? Learning to communicate. Lots of fun storytelling, uh, show and tell, even up to eight years old. So a primary one and two should change. Right? and have learning centres instead of straight roles like what they have in school. Right? Learning to collaborate. Very important. Right. Then dramatic and fantasy play. Oh, children love that. I think most of us like that too. Uh, narrative uh, actually leads the imagination. Then action songs and fantasy play. Uh, these are important for children. Right, and, and even for adults. Like for example, if you have a history lesson and instead of asking them to do a test, you can ask them to write a, a script 
simple script or they can uh, rap or something. So that's more exciting than sitting down and writing the tests, right? So these are some of the things that we can do. So manipulative play. So it's more, for me, it's multi-sensory. So if we use all our senses together when we learn something in the play, or whatever play you are doing, you are making more connections in the brain, right, in that sense. So that's always fun. So these are some of the manipul manipulative activities that we have. Right, next physical play after my heart, right? Physical play and musical play are my passion, right? Where's John? After more than 50 years in education, I'm still very passionate about music and movement and gymnastics. I think uh, that's important for me. So I've extended my passion for music to people with disabilities, except now we don't call them disabled, we call them different abilities. So not disabilities, but differabilities, okay? So we, we do for children and for the elderly, uh, active aging, people with uh, dementia and uh, Parkinson's disease. We have just won, I think in May, the best active aging program for the community at the Asia Pacific Elder Care Innovation Awards. So we're still doing that. Okay, exploratory play. Uh, where we, we always like to give them something that they can ask questions and they're interested in doing and playing. And your Lego is, of course, very good. Where's John? Uh, okay. And even the little ones can do a project. So this is a dolphin project, which they did. And then they, they, they have all their little things that they do after that to express themselves in their little work that they do, either craft or a little writing or whatever they want to do. So, ah, this is what I'm very, very keen on, nature and environmental awareness. Uh, it actually broke my heart to see that after a very successful national day uh, down at the floating, what is that, stone platform, very, very exciting. But after that, we had an army of 400 to clean up the place. So it has not gone down into our culture for this environmental stuff. So I think we should start when they're very young. How many generations do we have? We had fines, we had community service and all that. It's still not working. Why? Why? I think you all have to ask yourself why, right? So... Now, I'd like to um, maybe tell parents, quite a lot of you are parents here, that every child, your child is very special. So if they recognize his or her gifts and talents, encourage them to develop their own individuality. They may not know their passion yet, yeah, but help them to discover their interest. And then develop growth mindset. We can talk about a little about growth mindset later on and then champion mindset and become the person he or she is capable of becoming. Right? That's very important. I think from your survey, uh, Matthews, I think uh, more parents are 
more subscribing to this, okay? And I'm happy for that, okay? Next, we must have music, right? So this is The Roots and Wings, a poem by Dennis Whiteley. Uh, it's about the inner voice of a child, and I want every parent to commit this to memory. I was at the RGS Founders Day a couple of years ago, and their theme was Roots and Wings. And I was really inspired by the poem. So on the way back, driving my car, the song just came to me. So when I wrote this, and then now these are the lyrics, and we're going to get everybody to sing. The first verse, we want you to read it together with me very, very slowly and feeling the words and reflecting on the message that your child is trying to tell you. Can I have the music please? Thank you. And we'll sing the next two verses. Okay, next three verses I think. A little louder, please. Ready? If I had two wishes, everybody, I know what they would be. I would wish for roots to cling to and wings to set me free. Roots of inner values like rings within a tree and wings of independence to seek my destiny. Okay, we can all sing now. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Roots to hold forever to keep me safe and strong. So let me know you love me When I've done something wrong To show me by example And help me learn to choose To take those actions every day To win instead of lose Just be there when I need you To tell me it's alright Face my fears have fallen When I test my wings in flight Don't make my life too easy It's better if I try And fail and get back up myself So I can learn to fly If I had two wishes And two were all I had and they could just be granted by my mom and dad. I wouldn't ask for money or any stalwart things. The greatest gifts I'd ask for are simply roots and wings. The greatest gifts I'd ask for so Actually, <laughs> all right. No, I just like to conclude with my six C's 
for us and for your children for the future. And I'd like you to read from the left side, the bottom part. Okay, everybody together, work collaboratively, communicate clearly, think critically, utilize connectivity, develop creativity, and embrace culture. So think about these. So what needs to change? What are the challenges? What are your responsibilities? So it's up to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mrs. Lim, for a very rousing uh, speech. <laughs> if there's anything I learned, I obviously need more singing lessons. Uh, can I invite... Nobody can sing. <laughs> no, 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 you don't want to hear me sing, seriously. Uh, Mrs. Lim, can I get you to talk, please? Thank you very much. You're not planning to sing, are you? <laughs> Okay, I can Suzanne might sing. <laughs> no, I'm going to make your dance now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Mine won't be as uh, entertaining, uh, but uh, uh, I, th I really like what uh, Kami Lim said, uh, because I have a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler, and she comes home from school every day, and she says, school is so fun, you know? And it made me sort of think about how I worry in the future she's going to come home one day and say, school is so boring, you know? Um, thanks. Okay, so the title of my presentation today is Learning Beyond the Test and how do we prepare students for the 21st century and sort of this ties in with the whole idea of tuition as well that we're going to talk about. So I'm going to talk about two things first in response to the question, what needs to change? So the first part, I'm going to set the kind of context, okay? Um, what are the kinds of skills and dispositions we need right now in this 21st century? And then the second part, I'm going to talk about a reorientation. And because of time, I'm just going to focus on three, assessment, skills, and philosophy. So let me just jump right ahead because we only have uh, 10 minutes. Okay, so what is this 21st century that we're living in? How do we prepare students for the 21st century? All over the world, you know, governments, policymakers are all concerned about this idea of equipping students with key competencies and skills. And you see OECD, MOE, P21, all these organizations coming up with frameworks. One thing is common okay, in all these frameworks, and that is we have moved beyond a kind of factory model or Fordist model of schooling. And I want to highlight four uh, shifts. The first is that we have moved beyond standard uh, sort of memorization and regurgitation of facts. All right, towards equipping students to analyze, synthesize, okay, and evaluate data. Also appropriating multimodal uh, technologies to communicate meaning. So think about this, um, you know, a survey uh, by OECD has found that 96% of, of workers in organizations and 85% in medium-sized businesses have access to and use the internet as part of the work. But they also found that, you know, there is a kind of non-concurrence because 56% of workers don't have sufficient skills. 
okay, to handle complex tasks in a technological age. We are living in, the, in an environment where work is becoming digitized. And uh, I like this article uh, by uh, MIT professor Henry Jenkins where he highlights the new kinds of skills we need right now. And I want to highlight just four that he mentions. The first is networking. Networking is not about you know, learning knowledge and all that, but it's learning how to use knowledge, learning how to search for knowledge, learning how to synthesize, connect the dots, Okay, learning how to appropriate, how to sample, how to remix things that you get, you, you, the knowledge that you get. Transmedia navigation is learning how to connect across different kinds of media, whether it's film, whether it's uh, social media, whether it's literature, whether it's news articles, the ability to follow the flow of stories and make connections across media. Negotiation is about working with diverse people in, from diverse cultures in groups. And it's linked to the idea of collective intelligence, not simply just working together, but learning how to pull the strengths from different people to solve problems. Okay, in, I want to draw the attention to English because that's my field. And I want to say that, you know, it's very common I've seen in classes where teachers like to do what's called template teaching. They go into a class and say, for example, um, this is a template of uh, formal letter writing or report writing, and they get students to memorize these templates. But in this 21st century, is there a need to memorize templates anymore? Because you just need to go to Google and key in formal letter writing, for example, you get 100 templates. What is important is to train students to evaluate, to learn how to critically evaluate which template is best for which com context and which situation and why. Okay, um, so instead of standardization, I think nowadays more in, uh, emphasis is placed on critical, creative thinking and the capacity to make intra and interdisciplinary connections. So in a survey of 400 employers uh, across the US, you know, they found that applied skills are now as important as basic disciplinary knowledge. Okay, so applied skills like critical thinking, oral communication, written uh, communication, teamwork, diversity, IT applications, leadership, creativity, lifelong learning, ethics. All these are becoming important. And what is more important also is not just all these uh, skills, but socialization, social skills are also as important. In another survey um, conducted by the National Association of Colleges and Employers, they asked employers about what they look for in you know, candidates' resume. And the top four have to do with things like leadership. Can they work in a team? Okay? Can they, do they have communication skills? Um, can they solve problems? Um, you know, and also the idea, I think uh, Dennis mentioned earlier, that the teacher has moved from this idea of, you know, the knowledge giver, downloading things to students, right? Now it's about uh, student ownership of learning. Um, in education, you hear words like flip classroom, you know, maker spaces, and all these have to do with students taking ownership of learning, directing their own learning, constructing learning rather than depending on teachers. And there's the whole emphasis on autonomy and agency. So I want to say something that not everyone might agree with, um, uh, and this is just to provoke uh, discussion later on. Um, I want to suggest that tuition actually reinforces a more traditional model aligned with the kind of Fordist model of learning. Um, less emphasis is given to the kinds of 21st century Dispositions and skills that I mentioned earlier, things like social skills, learning to collaborate, because in tuition you're always trying to compete. 
Um, it's also a very individualistic kind of exercise. It's not collaborative. So parents need to recognize that while tuition may help a child do well in high-stakes assessment, may not equip the kid, students with critical, creative, collaborative, and communicative skills that they need when they enter the university or when they enter the workforce. And at the extreme, I think too much tuition can hinder key habits of mind, like curiosity, the love for learning, the passion for life. These things can be destroyed also uh, when too much emphasis is given to tuition. Um, so I want to give one example of my own life just very quickly. Um, uh, I had tuition, okay? I had tuition in one subject that I struggled with uh, throughout school, which was Chinese. Um, <laughs> and, um, but the thing is, um, once I passed my A-levels, okay? And once I passed my A-levels, that was it. I stopped learning Chinese. Because, you know, the thing about tuition is the goal is just to pass the high-stakes assessment. Once you pass it, there's, there's no more need to study. And I didn't feel that, you know, I was interested. No one got me interested in the love for Chinese. And so once I passed my A-levels, I stopped learning Chinese uh, until now. You know, so, so this is the thing. Too much emphasis on tuition can actually kill the interest and it can also make you focus on the high-stakes assessment. And once that assessment is over, students may not feel the need to continue learning. So what needs a reorientation? Um, I just want to focus on three things. Oh dear, I see I have two more minutes. Okay, let's, let, let me just try to... Uh, talk about this. The first is assessment. Um, what I, I, this is my wish list. I hope that you know, high-stakes assessment can increasingly include more open, formative forms of assessment that can provide room for students to demonstrate critical and creative thinking. I think if we don't think about changing assessment, um, a lot of things will not change. You can do all these fun, innovative pedagogy, and we've seen it, but you know, if the assessment does not change, right, it's very hard to affect key changes in the way we teach. So some positive changes we have seen is that in the O-level English paper, we have seen um, questions that are a bit more open-ended that ask students to think about the effect of language and not just comprehending what the text is saying. In the IB, which is very interesting, um, the external pen and paper test is only 70%. And 30% is given to more creative open-ended things like oral presentation and what they call individual presentation where students have to research on a topic they're interested in and present it before other people. All right, so these are interesting ways of thinking about how assessment doesn't need to be 100% pen and paper. We can include more critical uh, and creative kinds. Um, second, skills. I think we need to think about giving more importance to the softer skills, skills like communication and collaboration. And I want to give the example of English as well. For a very long time in Singapore, we have emphasized the instrumental use of English, English as a tool for communication. But what we have not emphasized enough is the more dialogic forms of communicating through English. So many scholars have talked about how English is not just a tool for communication, but it's a tool to understand other people. And subjects like literature, which is marginalized in Singapore, should be given more emphasis because literature promotes um, you know, dialogue, promotes engagement. Students have to debate and dialogue with others about a point of view. Uh, this is a class, uh, this is a picture of a class of research I've done and, and this is United World College. This is an example of their language literature classroom where language and literature are integrated. Yes. And in this classroom, you can see the back of this classroom, they are full of books because every student has to read one book 
every month and they can choose whatever books they are interested in. You can see the setup of the classroom. There are only 15 students in the class. It's not, it's not like our typical um, classroom where it's rows. It's U-shaped because students are encouraged to dialogue and share what they've learned from books. It's a very dialogic environment they have set up to foster collaboration. Um, and my final point um, is philosophy. I think this is the most important and the most fundamental. We need to change our philosophy of teaching, of education, or more, uh, or another way of saying it, we need to articulate uh, more consistently, more overtly, a philosophy grounded in ethics. The thing is that a lot of times, um, I think tuition and competition reinforces what I call a human capital model of education, where the aim of education is to prepare students for the workforce, where the aim of education is to make kids more competitive. But that is not the end of education. That's not the ultimate aim of education. I want to give two other terms we can use. One is called human capability approach, which is to say that education should be more than this. Education should be about the flourishing of individuals, helping individuals discover their potential, pursue curiosity and the love for learning. Um, and more than that is the cosmopolitan ethical approach, which is not just about the flourishing of the individual, but as I flourish, I also help other people flourish in the world. This is the ethical end of education that enables other people, um, that enables you to live meaningful lives in this world. Uh, and this is my last slide. I want to end with two uh, philosophers for us to just think about. Uh, the first is Confucius, who says, the humane person wishing himself to be established sees that others are established. Wishing himself to be successful sees that others are successful. How can education develop individuals to develop a sense of curiosity and love for learning so that in the process, they can help others in the world. They can help other people flourish. The second quote is by the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who says, act so that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in that of another, always as an end and not as a means. You see, the competitive kind of environment we have teaches kids to outwit and outlast other people, teaches kids to get ahead, right? Teaches kids to make use of other people in order to win. But how in education can we return to a more ethical basis? That is to help students transcend their self-interest. Okay, so that they live passionate as well as compassionate lives. I think we need to articulate an ethical end of education, an ethical aim, um, and uh, reinforce this consistently so that our attitudes will change. All right, um, I think I've sort of... Uh, sped through what I wanted to say, but I hope um, um, that my points have gotten through. Thank you very much for your attention. Thankfully, we only have three speakers, so we have more time for each person. Uh, so we've heard Kami talks about being playful. Now we've heard Suzanne talk about being ethical and being human. Um, Mr. Tongyi? Yeah, I really prefer this much. I don't know why people still use podiums nowadays. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Tong Yi. Suzanne was just reminding me that we came from the same primary school, <laughs> same class together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello. I also suck at my Chinese, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so let's talk through this. Um, I think I'm supposed to be the token tuition guy. So, 
I am now current director of a group of social enterprises called the Thought Collective. Uh, among that group over here is actually a group called the School of Thought. And um, there were a few main questions uh, that were posed to me. I think IPS was hoping that I would answer. Um, I want to just quickly explain first that I'm not really sure whether I'm representative of the tuition market. Um, although there is a lot of deep conversation I have with the tuition market and the tuition centres, right? School of Thought as a centre was a centre that was set up about 2002. The aim was to teach civic education in the private sector. Uh, exactly, basically, what, what, what Dennis is talking about, the whole idea of whether we could get students to pay for um, classes in civics. Um, but in doing so over here, it was actually almost impossible. So what we did was we disguised the civic program as an English program and a general paper program. Right. Yeah. So because, because these subjects don't have content, uh, you can plug any content you want into these particular subjects. So people were coming in, uh, running an English program for six months, and then discovering that English is really very meaningful. Um, and I, I think it began to scale. Currently, we teach about roughly between 800 to 1,000 students a year. Uh, it is a good business model that's sustainable. But a lot of the money itself that we earn, we take it and we put it into the other social enterprises that we have, right? Uh, we should largely just create a much more larger ecosystem of learning, okay? So that's the background. Uh, but let me go through some of these main questions, right, that were asked. Um, the first few questions were based upon a parent survey. One was uh, to give insight on why is it there's actually more and more importance, right? All these uh, parents were asking to place more importance on moral and, and civic education, right, within schools. The second idea was that um, multiple parents were also saying that they wanted more emphasis on English. And the third was a general understanding from my perspective of why there's an obsession within tuition itself. Okay, so these are the comments. Let's start with this one. There is a huge dramatic shift in terms of the identity of youth today, right? And what I've been hearing a lot right, within parents who have said, please teach my student, uh, please teach my child values, or please teach my child, you know, uh, some sort of a civic education, has been focused on actually on one core value, and that's primarily respect. Um, what is very fundamental about this is that actually parents are not asking us to teach civic values, they're asking us to teach um, them how to be more respectful. And um, many of the parents are saying, my, my child actually no longer respects me, and therefore they should be taught you know, some level of respect. But what is really, really interesting, and I think this begins, this anecdote, right, when I give a lot of insight into it. Um, one of my students was coming over, and um, this was a student and parent sort of like meeting, right? And what happened over here was that um, the student had in an earlier conversation told me that they had all lost respect for their parent because their parent uh, was eating shark's fin soup. Right. They also, uh, in another incident, uh, parents said, I lost my respect for my parents ever since they told me, um, don't mix together with the Blanga workers, right, that way. And they were growing up with very, very different values. And they found itself like, being unable to connect with the um, same world that the parents began to live in, right. However, when the parent came in itself and began to actually say whatever instructions they said, fundamentally the idea was that I, I no longer trust my parents leading. I don't trust the fact right, that my parent is leading me into a space which I truly feel that this will be in line with what I want for the 21st century or what I want for my future. Right? And this particular message right, is coming out over here, where I would hear this a lot um, from students. I no longer trust where they are leading me. So the whole emphasis right now, for example, on holistic education, is one in which maybe an older generation of parents do not fundamentally get it or understand. And in doing so over here, the student doesn't show respect. So a parent might come in and say, please teach my child respect, right? But if you truly if someone talk about civic value, right, or moral education, things like that, many parents don't want that kind of civic education. 
So if I say, for example, I'm going to now teach your child to begin to spend more time, you know, volunteering. Oh, no, 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 no need, no need, no need. Just, just teach them more respect. <laughs> and, it's, and it's interesting over here because actually there's, when, when parents ask for this, um, in truth, when we run all the focus groups, it seems as if this is really what they really want, right? And there's been a confusion over what do we mean by really civic values, right, there. So that's one particular idea. Um, there's a second perspective, though, I think I want to represent in terms of parents themselves. I was having a conversation with one of the more uh, senior civil servants, right? Um, and he was just saying over here that... Oh, sorry, let me pause. Uh. Sorry, I'm censoring my mind before I reveal anything. He's saying that in running of policy at a high level, um, he says that all the economic models that we currently have, um, they're basically useless. None of them capture the complexity of the world today. And he says over here that um, the one thing he feels that we really have made a mistake in is to de-emphasize lit. That literature as a subject is the only subject that for now, when he reads, can unlock the complexity of what he's seeing in terrorism, or to unlock the complexity of what he's seeing within income disparity. That only within lit itself does it capture the nuancing within narrative, but economic models just don't capture that kind of human nuancing. Right? And when we lose this over here, he's just saying that it's actually quite important to bring lit back. Right? But in doing so over here, he says that at the end of the day, the economic models are faster. They don't uh, slow us down, they speed us up. They help us begin to run broad understandings of how to begin to conclude these particular things. But he says it no longer captures right, uh, where we are in society today. And many parents are saying exactly the same thing. Please teach my child values. Because when I begin to work and I'm forced to do whatever I do because of speed or expediency, whatever the case over there, right, I feel that I don't have a grasp right, of being a role model for my child. And I can't teach my child this. So can you begin to teach them those values? And it almost comes across as a helplessness on behalf of the parent, right, themselves. Okay. There were also questions asking about obsessive tuition culture. Um, and I got four minutes in doing this. But in doing so over here, uh, I will say this anecdotally, because I can't possibly understand why is it there are so many parents, right, sending their kids for tuition. Um, my oldest daughter right now is eight years old, right? When me and my... Uh, uh, wife were discussing, right, when, when we were first having her, we discussed that we would never ever send her for tuition, never, we'd rather die, right, <laughs> send her for tuition. And what happened over here was that she came in and um, we all discussed, right, that both of us were weak in Mandarin and we felt that, you know, she, what happens if she needs to, to go? And we said that, never mind, don't enter the Chinese market, you can enter the African market, it's perfectly fine, <laughs> right? And you can enter that particular way because we see the African market as big as basically the Chinese market, right, in the future. And we were talking about this over here, but the complexity of it came that when she went into school, and once she went to school, she didn't do well for certain subjects, right? And um, I saw my child being bullied. So she would come home every day and she would cry. And I sent her and she would beg, please right, send me for some sort of class. And the idea itself was that it's not that I want it, but I didn't want to see my child go through that kind of social stigma, right? Then the grandparents came on. And it, it just, I want to get them off my back, right? And I knew myself as that. These were social dynamics that were driving the tuition. It wasn't uh, because I want my child to compete. At the end of the day, I have no problem sending my child to a neighborhood school. I truly was one of those idiots that believe that all schools are good schools. <laughs> I truly believe so. I really think itself as a question itself. Social mixing is valuable. You know, all these other civic values are valuable. I think itself, like, mixing itself with your fellow Singaporeans is valuable, right? I think. You know, all, all these things are important in the child's upbringing. But in doing so over here, I get it that I started to send my child for tuition, essentially because of that. Um, the social dynamic that she was living, it was a very painful social dynamic, right? And it's one that's being created by a much more larger society. So 
I made a comment right within a CNA interview some time back to say that um, there is fear driving the tuition industry. And I feel itself right. this is, um, I mean, when I speak to a lot of other tuition groups, right, um, what happens over here is that they, were, they will always come to place and say, um, how do you get your students to come over? Um, what do you say to them? And then they'll say, this is the marketing tools that we have. And the more I listen to them, it's true. Within the whole narrative, there is get them to believe that schools are not enough. As long as schools are not enough, they will drive them into these particular centres. And I think it's an extremely dangerous narrative that begins to run out over here because they will tell that same thing within the classes right there. So I don't think right, that fear is the only thing to drive extracurricular education. Right? In and of itself, it's not so much what we do in tuition, it's that how we see. Right? And I think the whole idea itself behind tuition is that fear may not be the only thing. Solidarity can drive it too. Right? And one thing itself, I, I was, will, will make sure that I will tell my students, I'm not here to replace your MOE system, right? We're here to supplement and work in tandem with, and we will speak in conversation with your teachers. Um, but this is something where even students will go, huh? <laughs> they don't understand it, right, that particular way. Um, but I think there is room for new narrative. The tuition industry, if I'm not wrong, is here to stay for some time yet, right? Yeah. And let me close with just this one last idea. The question was asking whether or not there's strong and strong emphasis on English language teaching. Um, the recent stats from MCCY is 40% of all marriages right, are married to a foreigner in Singapore. Right? The demographics in Singapore are vastly changing. Um, I just came from a meeting with Marceline Primary School. Right? Uh, this is actually all the way in the Woodlands. They are the closest primary school to, to the causeway. Right? And one third of their students um, come from uh, Malaysia. They come in, right? uh, they enter the school. Many of their children over here come to a place over here where their parent does not speak English themselves. Right? And there's anxiety on how to begin to, 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 take, to take care of the child's learning needs. And in doing so over here, that yes, um, I'm not so sure whether or not English has become more popular, but as opposed to itself, right, that the family support structure no longer is strong enough to begin to support that. And the demographics are beginning to change. So actually, that's one particular thing that um, schools are urgently trying to contend with. And very oftentimes, secondary schools will say that um, I'm teaching my child English, but I'm inheriting a problem that has started with primary school. And primary school will say I'm inheriting a problem that started with the family. Right, so on and so forth, it grows. But yes, families in Singapore are changing. Right? But I would say, and this is something that happens on the JC level a lot, um, I have multiple students who come in right, telling me that they have a problem with English. They come over and sign for the GP program, says over here, my English sucks. And what is interesting is that if you really make a mark, and I, I give you an estimate, okay, I think 15% of the scripts which I mark, right, and let's say I go through a mark, they would have first paragraph, first, second paragraph, third paragraph, all marked blood, bloody red, okay? Mistakes all the way through. Fourth paragraph, it minimizes. Fifth paragraph, there's no longer any mistakes. By sixth paragraph, it's a clean paragraph. This student doesn't have a problem with English. They have a problem with anxiety, right? And the thing itself about distinctions is that I've got so many students in my uh, school coming over primarily because they have anxiety over their English, anxiety over exams, anxiety over performance but they don't have a problem with English. They really don't. And once you handle the anxiety problem, the language cleans up. Right. And it's a fascinating thing that we have to begin to see that I do think within the teaching service, there's more and more need for us to listen better, right? have more distinctions in how we're working with students themselves, right? as opposed to this is a grammatical problem. right? Yeah. So a lot of these hang-ups over here, and I say this in my closing uh, idea, right? That listening, I think, is really key to teaching. And at this current juncture, because of the stress that we have within the Singapore education system, I don't think we're listening very well anymore. Um, so the 
client base, I think, is calling out, right? Please listen, right? And find better ways to begin to communicate to us. Right. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Tong. Um, we have a number of questions that's coming online on pigeonhole at the moment. Um, so if you do have people who want to vote and put in more questions, please do go ahead with this. Um, the, the topic is around curriculum emphasis and tuition. And in many ways, those two areas address a very fundamental problem, uh, issue, which is what is the purpose of education for us? And that's a fundamental question that any society has to address, and it's a permanently changing one. As long as our economy changes, society changes, education has to change. Yes. So, Kami, you talked about being playful. Uh -huh. You know, Suzanne talks about being ethical, being humane. Tongi, you talked about you know being literate, being understanding those values behind being going to school, etc., and all that. Um, but yet, at the same time, when you think about curriculum, right? You must have only a fixed number of space in the curriculum in the school. You must have something in there and you must have something not in there. Mm. It's always something that's always excluded, right? So, to, to the three of you, if you don't mind, let me just start this question first. Why is it that certain topics or certain subjects are included in the syllabus, in the curriculum, and why are certain topics not included? <laughs> Um, Mr. Tong, would you want to take a shot at this? No. <laughs> I don't know whether it's a leading question, um, because my mind only goes in one particular place, right, in terms of response to this. I really would go back to what Suzanne was talking about, that it's a... It's a really old model, this Fordian model of actually what somehow is relevant for the economy and not relevant for the economy, right? Um, I find it shocking that 21st century, right, you still have students that will still talk about this is not relevant. Um, I find that um, relevance is something where it, it has to be worked on, um, especially in the in social innovation sector. Uh, I've learned that nothing is irrelevant, right? Every single thing is irrelevant, is relevant largely because we live in an interconnected society. But if young people grow up right, understanding some things are not relevant right now, um, then they don't develop the muscles that would have them begin to survive in the long run. Um, so yes, I can only relate it back to the old Fordian model. Okay. Um, Suzette? No. Oh, do you want to ask? No, I just want to add that um, the world is changing, so our curriculum should and must change. So you, you will have to sit down and decide what do they need now. Because, um, you see, they can always get information from all over the world now. There's uh, Google everywhere, books and everything else, or even social media. So we will have to really consider what the basic needs we must know. Yeah, you, you really need to know yeah, a language, you need to know history, you need science and the math. But the rest, the basics must be there then, of course, then you can move out. But for me, definitely um, exercise or PE, physical play, uh, musical play must be there. It can be integrated 
into as part of the curriculum. And we can also use um, the pedagogy with these in mind to teach whatever subject we want. For example, let me give you, I, I used to teach physics with chemistry in a neighborhood school because I was the first principal there and I had lots of uh, very, very lively boys who loved soccer. And then I was supposed to teach Newton's law of motion. So how can I teach them? So I took them out to the field with a ball, soccer ball, because they love soccer. They're always coming to my, my class sweating. So I put the ball there. I said, can the ball move? They say, no, Mr. Slim. I say, if you kick it, will it move? He said, yes. I say, this direction, he will go there. And what if your friend heads it to the other side? Yeah, he will go to the goal. So then I let them show off. So they go, chiang, 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 chiang. And only about five minutes I get them, I, I've engaged them. So from there, I can teach inertia. I can teach impact. I can teach projectile. I can teach anything. So that's what I mean by pedagogy and engaging the students. So curriculum, other than that, when we were in school, how were you taught? Uh, F equals MA, then do calculation, right? Yeah. How many of you can remember? <laughs> but they will remember because they were involved. Okay, I just want to just throw in another idea. Um, I think we also need to rethink um, universities' sort of entrance requirements because a lot of these things trickle down. Um, I think one of the greatest fears parents have is that you know that your kid cannot get into a university, so therefore you invest in tuition to help them score. Um, you know, it's not just passing; they have to get the distinctions. So when I look at the history of English education, for example, in the U.S., um, in the past to get into Harvard um, and the top universities like Yale, they insisted that all students must do this test. And they assessed students on how well they knew Shakespeare and Chaucer and all that. Now, uh, around the 1970s, they changed the requirements. They took away what is called these uh, college tests and the, uh, a standard list of books that students have to memorize. The minute that happened, um, a lot of things changed. Education became more creative, more open. Um, I think you saw in schools also to get into universities in the US, it's not just about that one test. It was also about uh, teachers' testimonials. It was also about uh, you know, looking at portfolios of students' work and all these sort of gave a fuller idea of the student, not just that one single test. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you saw all these, uh, we saw all these things trickle down to making the schools more diverse, more uh, inclusive, more vibrant. Um, so I think if I were to suggest one sort of major thing to consider is to rethink the way we, we assess uh, students um, in, in terms of the entrance into universities. Um, because that, I think, has a huge trickle-down effect. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, we um, let's see how this works. We have a question here. I think um, in pigeonhole. Oh, there, there we go. This is directed at uh, Kami. Uh, <clears throat> would the high school fees of mine champs exclude kids of a lower social economic status? Oh, reproducing uh, inequality. 
I actually don't know anything about school fees. I'm, my, my main goal in MindChamps is to develop the curriculum for the preschool. So I'm really thrilled that the government is now focusing on preschool and then more kids can go in. I know it's on the high side, but we're not the highest. I think Eton School and all that will have. I, I don't know how much. Um, but we do give special to people who need to come in. Uh, we also did a few, like, uh, students who come in free. We just teach them that the group, I think it was with, oh dear, can't even remember, Toapayo with the MP, they, they selected a few of them to come in. So uh, please don't ask me about, I have no idea about fees, yeah. Um, what about Mr. Tong, in terms of your uh, tuition centers and fees, um, does yeah. If I quickly respond to that, what's interesting is when School of Thought first started, it was one-third students uh, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Then what happened was that the school got popular, and what happened was that uh, there was a waiting list that started to open up. When the waiting list started to open up, it was the people of socioeconomic status who were uh, far more privileged, who knew about the program and signed up sometime like in primary five, even though it's a JC program. <laughs> right. And I said, are you freaking kidding me? Your kid is what? 11. Yeah, and it says, never mind, just be first, right? And then they come in, right? And then they'll wait. And they, these parents, uh, they will call in every single year. It says, Do I, does my child serve a place? My child serve a place. So when the place finally pulled up, right? Roughly within our seventh year of operation, we were almost 95% people within uh, middle income and above, right? And despite the fact itself that we had a strong financial aid program to support up to one third of the students, um, the poorer students wouldn't come because they felt intimidated by the culture that's happening in the school. And this was happening in the open market, right? We saw that. And we felt that we, unless you open up a completely different platform, right, uh, which allows for that to happen, the market forces would change the thing almost instantaneously. Yeah, it's not about policy, it's about culture. Yeah. But is it possible that in, in, in um, because the tuition industry is largely profit-driven, so no matter what, the market forces are going to naturally almost push it towards a bias towards those people who can afford uh, tuition and afford it well, right? Uh, do you perceive or do you see that the tuition culture or the industry can actually potentially change uh, in, in a direction which is more equitable? Yes, but I do oh. see it as a business innovation that the entrepreneur must be keen to take on. Uh, yeah. Can you elaborate? So if I say, for example, uh, most of my costs go down to rental and staff. But if I move towards more of a, a freelance model where basically uh, school teachers come in to begin to support or government begins to support us in terms of rental, then immediately itself, right, my prices all start coming down. Mm. Right? Um, and there are some things over here that we're already moving right now, right? Uh, trying to find the other models to make this somehow work. But there are very, very few social entrepreneur types within the market. But if you're asking me whether it's possible, entirely. Okay. Yeah, entirely possible. Okay. Um, thank you. We have another question. This is actually, there's one that has more votes, but um, I don't know who is it directed towards. So I'll skip to Suzanne. Suzanne. Okay, <laughs> what's that? Um, the question is, um, how do you envision changing assessments to be more aligned with 21st century competencies being enacted in Singapore? Can we push for drastic changes when the public is not ready? Um, 
Yeah, I think I think uh, emphasizing things like critical, creative thinking. I think that's one uh, step. Collaboration. I think the three C's: critical, creative thinking, and collaboration. For example, I think I give the example of the IB. For example, um, where not everything has to be in pen and paper. That you also have uh, room for formative kinds of assessment, um, where you also have room for assessment in other modes, for example, creative presentations, dramatizations. Mm -hmm. uh, in one of my research projects, I saw uh, a school doing this very innovative kind of assessment where they assess students not by the answers, but the kinds of questions that they ask. Um, so, that, so, you know, you see all these things, um, but how can high-stakes assessment also sort of be, sort of include space for that kind of uh, more creative, open-ended forms of assessment where it cannot be learned in tuition, okay? I think we have to include kinds of assessment that you can't really learn from tuition centers. Ex example, like um, if they have to work in a team, if they have to conduct research in a team to solve a, a real-world problem, um, which is something that I'm currently investigating uh, with three schools right now, where uh, it's part of their assessment, they have to solve a global problem, um, uh, you know, and they have to work with people from different countries, okay? And what is assessed is not just, uh, you know, learning how to research and pull data from Google, but learning how to negotiate, communicate across cultures. Mm -hmm. So all these are key 21st century dispositions. I think the, the question about, um, do you push for change when the public is ready? I, it's a chicken and egg question, right? If you always wait for the public to be ready, uh, nothing's mm -hmm. going to happen mm -hmm. um, because the public is also waiting for MOE, for educators and scholars to give leadership. And I think we need to give leadership and I think we need to communicate the reasons why we do certain mm -hmm. things. And I think if we, if we communicate and say, you know, these changes are, 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 are occurring because it's in line with what's happening in the 21st century because mm -hmm. it will prepare your students for the workforce. Yep. I think you can convince parents. Mm -hmm. So it's up to, I think, um, leaders uh, in education to communicate to parents the reasons why certain changes are done. Um, and I think if this is communicated well, I think the public will go along. They trust the MOE um, leadership, they trust um, NIE, they trust institutions um, and yeah. that that communication, I think, is important. Yeah. Well, I think all these uh, assessments are fantastic, and they are already occurring in the schools. Yeah. But your PSLE and your O-levels are all the same, so they still go for the tuition, right? Um, okay, I, I think I want to push a little bit more for both of you as well. One of the reasons why PSLE kind of remains the same, and um, you, we all talked about all those so-called 21st century co uh, competencies, yeah. right? Um, you talked about ways of assessing, modes of assessment, formative, mm -hmm. using um, stage play, yeah. using yeah. teamwork, collaborations, yeah. and all that. But I think one of the problems we have, and, uh, and this is quite a, ser uh, a serious problem in the sense that the assessment of outcomes, 21st century outcomes, remains quite difficult to assess. Yeah. All right? So in PSLEs, you require a standardized test score. And it's been developed over decades. We know how to assess language, English, math, science, etc. How do you assess navigation? How do you assess transmedia, uh, no, sorry, transmedia navigation, negotiation, 
networking. Can, can a student one day receive a report from the teacher saying, hmm, your results for networking is 32.615, <laughs> but your negotiation is about 42. You need to improve on that because the student next to you can negotiate better than you. Yeah. You know, right. will that ever happen one day? If it does, <laughs> then, you know, we have that vicious cycle. Parents are going to game the system, and then you have a whole bunch of tuition centres opening up that... <laughs> you know, navigation tuition culture. center. This is it. Wow, this is tough. This is a tough question. Um, uh, what I think one, the point I'm trying to say is that you know, um, does PF does the entrance into um, secondary school have to depend solely on that just that PSLE? Can the PSLE score be say, for example, seventy percent? of that requirement and the other 30% could come from something else. Something else that maybe we give schools uh, more uh, um, autonomy, more um, um, space to, to um, more voice in this thing. For example, um, you know, uh, like for example, I, I mentioned, teachers can write testimonials. T schools can create their kind of school-based assessment, okay, or um, students can create portfolios. All right, or you can design a kind of cumulative uh, project at the end of the year, for example. Okay, and all these can be part of that kind of uh, a report or a portfolio that students submit when they want to enter into secondary schools. And these become, you know, it's not, so PSIE doesn't become the only one thing that schools look at. They also look at other things, that is what I'm, I guess I'm suggesting. Um, as to the way we can measure uh, these kinds of skills, you know, I think, think about a project not being a one-off solution, right? You also look at the process. How do students work in teams to come up with a solution to a problem? How do they work over time? Okay, um, and how do they document? How do they, what kinds of questions do they ask? Um, how do they arrive at the solution? So the process becomes more important as well, not just the answers to the solutions. So how do we design rubrics to look also at the process of their learning? So these are uh, things that I think um, there's been a lot of research done in that area as well. And I, I think other schools in other countries have also looked at that kind of formative assessment and rubrics that we can learn from. Thank you. Anyone else wants to? Yeah. Um, there is one question here which is not um, directed at anybody. Let me see whether I can try and. Uh, okay, I think it's directed at uh, Kami. <laughs> I can't read from here. Okay, so okay, so so it says uh, I'm going to direct it to you anyway. Uh, what prompted you to invest your time in the development of curriculum in the tuition industry? instead of continuing to contribute to the development of national curriculum in MOE? Oh, no, no. Um, I am not contributing to the curriculum development. This is early childhood, which I'm very passionate about. So it's, it's nothing to do with MOE, yeah. And also, MOE never asked me. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of MOE people like, here. I'm sorry. Uh, so I only do uh, early childhood. I do teacher training, particularly in music and gym and movement. Uh, that's about it, yeah. I do also parent education, uh, but I, I don't do anything about that. All my experiences with the secondary school that I, I used to head or I used to teach, yeah. That's it, yeah. Okay. Can I respond? Yeah, sure. Just a quick response to that. Mm. Um, I started to do a lot more work within systems thinking. 
I'm wondering really whether or not tuition centres can act as prototype centres for educational innovation. Um, I find that if you can find the right partners, and, and I know this for a fact, that multiple tuition centres are powered by ex-MOE teachers. Um, they still have a passion for the service and still have a passion for national curriculum. Um, but they are not bound by the same restrictions as a very large ministry does have. Right? And to, again, I'm worried about the question because it frames them as opposites. These two people. Right, yeah. And I'm worried itself that the demonization of tuition centers, you could lose an entire innovation space right there. And I'm wondering itself whether there can be a more collaborative narrative that begins to actually run this better. Yeah, um, separate the wheat from the shaft. There are some good tuition centers out there with some very good teachers that are innovating well and very quickly because their system allows it. Right, yeah. Okay, um, this is going to be directed at, uh, I'll ask all three of you to, uh, there it is, okay, uh, to respond to this. Maybe what, wait, what, okay. Maybe what needs to be changed uh, or what needs to change and be managed uh, is parents' expectations. So we, we know that um, tuition is driven largely by parents' resources. They were paid to go for tuition, etc. And there's a perception from parents that uh, tuition does help address particular needs, largely academic or other, uh, of the students. Um, how can you try and change the expectations of parents so that they won't necessarily you know, want to send their kids for tuition? Um, Kami, do you want to address that? I, um, I, I really don't know. See, parents, of course, would want their, their child to do well. So anyway, so they want them to do well. So that's why they think that they should go to tuition. Uh, having said that, my own granddaughter is going for maths tuition. She, not that she's not good, but she's in basketball and she's always playing basketball. So she missed a lot of lessons. And she says, Popo, I think I need help. So then she goes for maths tuition, right? If she stops playing basketball, then maybe she doesn't need to go. So I don't think we can... Uh, parents would want the best for their, for their child. I think that, that is the, the basic, I think. So it depends uh, a lot on how much they push their kids. Uh, I would want them to really recognise the look at the kids and, and help them to, to realise their own interest. And if you talk about passion, I think, who was that? Uh, I think John was saying they got no passion. I said, no, they have passion playing computer games. Yeah, so that, that's their passion. So whatever, they, they need to develop their own interest later on in life. So we just give them uh, time for whatever they, they want to do. But of course, we have to organize the time even on, on, uh, on the internet or whatever. So they, they're given so much time. The holiday may be a little bit more. So it's always the parents negotiating with the child and to make sure that they are on task or, or doing what they should be doing. Uh, helping them to build their own, uh, what we call, uh, uh, discipline. <laughs> discipline. Oh dear, suddenly I start thinking in Mandarin. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask uh, Suzanne to respond to this first. Sure. Um, I think um, what needs to change, I'll just simply put it as, I think the kiasu culture in Singapore. Um, I just want to relay this story that I quite often tell. Uh, a few years back, I met a, a superintendent in the, in the US in a top 
U.S. school district. And uh, I asked him what was his vision uh, for education for his district. And he said, my vision for my district is so that all students will be critical thinkers. So I asked him, so that's your end goal. And I said, you know, um, something just happened in the news yesterday. Um, there was a terrorist who went on board a, tra a, a plane and put a bomb in his underwear and wanted to blow up the plane. And I said, but don't you think the, the, the terrorist, when he planned this, was a critical thinker? He, he, he thought critically, and he was also a creative thinker. Nobody else thought of bringing a bomb on a plane in this way. And I said, if the end of your education, if the end goal of education is simply critical and creative thinking, then we have to ask yourself, what kind of people are you um, then creating? Uh, what kind of people are you um, preparing uh, your students for? And what person will they become? Will they become terrorists or will they become innovators like Steve Jobs, you know? Um, so critical creative thinking and all these that we've mentioned, these are important skills, but they are not the end of education. The end goal of education must be ethical. It must be something more than skills. It must be something more than just knowledge. It's about how you use skills and knowledge for the good of others. And that is the essence of ethics. The essence of ethics from Aristotle is how do I live well? in this world, in relation to other people. And I think we need to remind parents and the public, we need to communicate this philosophy across that education must prepare students to live well in life, to live passionately, to find their passion for living so that they will live not to compete and get ahead of others, but to help others, to defend others, uh, defend the rights of others, to feel compassion, to empathize um, with those who are marginalized and oppressed in this world, to have a voice for others who don't. Um, and I think um, we need to emphasize that more rather than the kiasu, kiasuism culture. Uh, Tongyi, I'm not going to ask you this question. I'm going to ask you the next one, which has quite a lot of votes um, because it's related to this as well. And I think you might have the... Uh, resources. Do, do we need a parent tuition centre to manage expectations? <laughs> Can the thought collective start one? <laughs> Actually, they are interrelated. Could I, I quickly just respond to this over here? Um, could we just quickly flip back to the previous question? Sure, um, yeah, helpful. Yep. I'm going to run this quickly. Um, School of Thought actually does a very active surveys around this particular topic, right? And we have data around what really motivates them to go for tuition, right? Uh, three core reasons that they show up year after year for the past 10 years. First one over here is this. Um, the, this is anecdotal, right? I was understand. Um, I taught a minister's son just last year, right? So he had come in, and after roughly about June, I said, you really don't need tuition. Why are you here? And he said, uh, I don't think you understand. We strive for excellence, right? And if my, uh, and I need you to curate the classes for me because I don't have time to do homework myself. But if I come over here, it's not that I need it, but I need someone to sort out everything for me so I know exactly what to do when. And he says, if my mother has a PA, I don't understand why I can't have one too. So what happens over here is basically, and he said that, and when I began to check right, with the rest, he says that this really does begin to actually, um, it, it is representative of an elite class that goes for tuition because they, they really want outcomes winning everything. But they don't have time to sort things out themselves. 
So we really are paying for the curation of the classes. Okay? There's a second group which uh, comes typically resentful. They come in because the, it's the parents' projected anxiety upon the kids. Right? And in doing so over here, they're not doing so well. Right? And basically, the parents force them to go for tuition. So they come typically resentful, and then the tuition center has to handle that resentment at least for a good six months or so before they start becoming okay with it. Okay? And then the third group over here genuinely is a group which has bad grades or uh, is scored very badly in school, but it says, why don't you ask your school teacher? And it says over here, and, and we all know this, within school systems, they say, because I didn't get the good teacher. Right? Yeah, and then when I go to the principal and says over here, can you please help me switch a class because this teacher's not teaching, basically the principal will, I mean, they have operational challenges, they won't be able to switch this kid's class. And then do so over here, says, so what are you supposed to do, right? If I can't get a good teacher, this teacher just cannot communicate or just doesn't know what he's saying, right? And just confuses me even more, then of course I'll go out and I'll search for it, right? And these are actually three, other than the first, very practical reasons as to why to do. They're either forced to go, they themselves are anxious because they don't have a teacher to support them. And we know this, that private sector only thrives because public sector might have failed in certain areas. But we're not saying, therefore, the MOE, that these students are conscious of the fact that there are some very good teachers in school themselves. I just don't happen to have that one. Right? And just say, yeah. So is there a need for a parent or an association? No, parent tuition center. <laughs> oh, a parent tuition center. <laughs> oh, dear. I think we have to find where the Trojan horse is. Um, what would get a parent to actually start to commit? to come in and start doing this over here. And we know that MOE and the rest of us, no one has leverages over parents. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a need. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I think the time's up for our panel. Yes. Um, I just want to close by saying that actually uh, all this discussion has been great. We, we need to think about education in a broader sense, that there is an entire trajectory of learning that occurs throughout our entire lives. Um, we don't have to be obsessed with academic outcomes everywhere. Yep. There's a multiple opportunities for all the different ways. purposes that we've all talked about here to be enacted across the entire lifespan. And I think that's something that we need to really drill into parents to let them know. Okay, with that, thank you very much for the panel. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, speakers and chairperson. It is now time for lunch.